Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. It is Friday, May the 19th. We are live on Rumble right now. It's a little bit after 8.30 in Texas, America. Folks down there in the chat, if you'll give me a thumbs up telling me that you can hear us just fine, and I will look forward to uh, bringing on our guest today. We've got George Hill. He was not testifying in person yesterday in front of Congress, and yet he was testifying in front of Congress, whether he liked it or not. He had some uh, some video footage that was shown. I think some of the stuff is going to be kind of eye-opening. I'm going to bring him on to discuss it. We're going to give our reactions to what we saw in the Weaponization Committee. Uh, if you still watch Fox News, you would have seen him on Laura Ingram last night, I believe. And uh, we've got a couple things that we're going to get into with him. So I think that's going to be very enjoyable. I think, uh, folks, if you have questions, go ahead and post them in the chat. If you want to do one of the Rumble rants, those are much easier for me to find. And uh, and I, we had some of those yesterday, which was awesome. I think we had almost 45,000 total views of the live stream we did, which is out of the park awesome for a small little channel that is growing like we are. Uh, before we get into bringing George on, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors, of which we have two, and they are both fantastic. Let me lead off with the well-known Patriot Coolers and PatriotCoolers.com. These are our friends over there. They are out of Houston, Texas. They make a fantastic product. You're seeing right there their soft-sided 10, 10, what is it, can cooler. I think you can put seven bottles in. I got seven yinglings in mine when I did it. Um, they're excellent. They're lightweight. They're flexible. You can um, strap them down to like a kayak. They're an outdoor tool that you're going to use for all kinds of different cool stuff. Check out patriotcoolers.com. Very easy to remember, just the way you think. And uh, here's my Patriot Tumblr right now. This is going to be the original 1.0. This There it is. There's my Suspendables logo right on top of it. And uh, I had this thing since 2017. I've used it in so many different places. It's been one of my surveillance buddies, one of my essential tools. I used to say that the uh, the three most important things for surveillance were you need a radio, you need a pee bottle, and you need a cup of coffee. Other than that, everything else is negotiable. Binoculars are nice, but you don't need them. This is something that's critical. This was a critical piece of gear for me. PatriotCoolers.com. Use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. Again, promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. And that will get you 10% off. Plus, it'll get you a free shipping if you spend more than 50 bucks. Buy one for you. Buy one for a friend. I see all the regulars sitting there in the live chat this morning. Thanks so much for joining us, folks. Also want to say thanks to our other sponsor. This is our sustaining sponsor. We've talked about it a little bit. We're going to bring up more and more up about them. This is the CatholicVote.org. CatholicVote.org has an excellent newsletter called The Loop. You can just fill in the subscription there. You can see it as the right part of their, uh, the main part of their screen when you log in. CatholicVote.org is an advocacy group. They're a 501c3 that you can donate if you want to help sue the FBI because they're going after Christians, especially Catholics in the Richmond Field Office. They are suing for all the documents uh, related to religious freedom, and they are America's top Catholic advocacy group. The word Catholic does, in fact, mean universal, which is to say all Christians can benefit from the advocacy they're doing. They believe in faith freedom, and family. Maybe not in that order. Uh, more importantly, that's the same sort of things that many of us do. If you happen to be a Catholic, great. And if you're not, you can still get a lot of value out of their newsletter, which is sharing this kind of stuff all the time. Check out catholicvote.org. And they are honestly keeping the lights on here at the Seraphim House as well. Really appreciate them. All right. Without too much further ado, I want to bring in the man, the myth, the legend, George Hill. He jumped onto a Twitter space yesterday. And when he did so... Uh, he just went kind of wild and just started talking and nobody knew who he was, who he was per se. Uh, he just launched into it like people know, just because he is a pretty familiar face to many of you. If you are following our show, uh, George Hill, welcome to the program, my friend. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, long day yesterday. I believe that. Actually, let me let me switch to this one here. I got a different view camera. There we go. All right. So there's George. He's sitting in his uh, undisclosed bunker location, surrounded by ammunition and uh, you know food stuffs, Stay Puft marshmallows, things like that. And George, yesterday you got an unexpected sort of cameo. Did you know that they were going to be playing those videos? Did they give you that heads up? No heads up, but I assumed as much. Um, Oh, I no. seem hold to on, have on, become here. one of their favorite boogeymen. Um, I, and, I lost uh, you for yeah, one second. No. So 
I lost you for one second there because that was my mistake. I got to add a different audio. Bear with me. Sorry about this, folks. I'm doing things on the fly because Tracy Beans asked me to be on her podcast. And so I did. And uh, when you when you do things like that, then you end up being kind of a bonehead who misses out on one of the most important things, which is the video. Let's put that up real quick. <laughs> the folks that are going to be listening to the uh, the audio stream on. There we go. All right. Sorry, my friends. Uh, they said, Kyle, you're muted. The sound just went away. Yes, of course it did, because I'm a fool. Um, I'm trying to build this airplane on the fly again. All right, George, you were in front of Congress without knowing it. Uh, I'll just going to double back to that. You didn't know that they were going to start playing those videos. And let's fire away. No, they they, they like uh, punching on me, and that's fine. Um, I don't know who's taking their cue from who, whether Congress is taking their cue from Rolling Stone magazine or vice versa. It's kind of hard to pull them apart and uh, see uh, who's calling the shots there. But yeah, I watched the the, uh, the uh, testimony yesterday from beginning to end and uh, wasn't surprised to see uh, come up there that Congress made a pretty lame attempt. But they keep on forgetting one key aspect that they love my Twitter post. Yes. And uh, thank you for, for, for Cong- U.S. Congress for following me on Twitter. But um, <laughs> they keep on forgetting those posts were made after I left the FBI. So they, they seem to have a lot of issues beyond the Second Amendment. They seem to have an issue... Uh, as evidence with their crucifixion of Matt Taibbi um, and the other gentleman I'm, whose name I'm blanking on right now. I apologize. Uh, Schellenberger. Schellenberger. Yep. Yeah. And but they seem to have a problem with the expression of free speech and they don't seem to understand hashtags. And as evidenced by that one congresswoman, I think she was from Texas um, uh, railing on Marcus. Yep. Um, they don't understand how twitter works either um apparently i think, some I think she was in california i think that was uh, uh representative sanchez with the okay with the, yeah with the it was definitely hair. sanchez i couldn't remember what uh what state she was what, from. A, what but, a goofball right like have you you've been in some interrogations right that, that uh yeah that's um, part that's um, part part of your life experience yeah uh you ever been in an interrogation where you had some bad background information and when you bring it up like it completely falls flat and then you just decided to stick with it is that a thing you've ever done you know, I, I do believe in the old adage, if you're in too deep, go in deeper. Um, but I mean, at, at some point, so um, you just need to recognize you're making a fool out of yourself and just, you know, it's like, all right, uh, you know, maybe have another question in the holster um, to be able to pull out and use. But no, she just kept right on digging. And um, I don't think they care um, of, of, of their own optic and how they look um, because they live in such a, a well-insulated echo chamber. They... Um, they don't care. I, I I honestly think that they don't, um, and they're they, immune to well, they got no, you know slander laws and things of that nature. That's so they exactly just do it. whatever they want to do. You're right. I'm going to sit back just a little bit because this is getting intense in my mind. Um, did you ever go through airborne training? Was that something you did in your military career? I went through the civilian side of the house. Um, it was on a dare from my son, so I, I got qualified. And you know, uh, this was was this like it, a, I mean, a free fall skydive kind of thing, or this was yeah, static? and um. After like your first or second free fall on your own, um, it's kind of boring. <laughs> it's, some people you know, love it, it. it. Some people absolutely love it? love it. No, I don't love it. I I just some people actually do. So, the, um, so military free fall and even civilian free fall, different animal than static oh, line. Yeah. And so, this lady reminded me of a static line class. You go through the army, so as you can imagine, you go through the army and things are dumb. A lot of times it's one of the dumbest courses that I've ever been through. I know people get excited about it because you get a badge out of it, but uh, end of the day. There's nothing brilliant about falling out of the back. It's like a C-130 comes and craps you out the back of it, and then you just end up wherever you go with minimal steerability. And, you know, there's an expression they use there, and they do it all the time. Uh, Airborne school is all about rote knowledge. They're all about slapping the side of their thing and pointing you out and uh, the knife hand and, and giving you that sort of instruction. Classic, you know, military culture that they've built up. But one of the funniest things is they will always tell you, um, once something happens, once you get to a certain point in the fall and you kind of assess that's treetops when you're at, uh, Fort Benning, you got to hold what you got. That's what they say it over and over again, hold what you got airborne. And even before you jump, they call you airborne. So hold what you got airborne is kind of a thing. And at some point in time when you're falling down there and you just see people and they're just, you know, I was laying on my back and I look up cause I did it right. Cause I'm not a dummy, I guess, but I look over and I just see guys just going off into the trees you know, and you go like, oh shit, that's going to really hurt. That just looks bad. That looks like that's going to be tough. And you just see him, you know, just taking tree branches to the face. You got to hold what you got. You got to put yourself in the crass position and do it. Or you see the guy that's flying down into the LZ, which is 2000 meters long. 
you know, and maybe uh, five or 600, maybe even a thousand meters wide. And he hits the only Humvee that's in the middle of the, uh, the LZ. And he comes in flying, you know, with some, some tailwind and smash. And he just goes right into the side of a Humvee and flips over it. And, you know, at some point you just hold what you got. That's because the alternative is you break your legs if you don't land correctly. Um, but maybe the, the side note is, is that you just get, you know, bruised ribs and a, you know, a new nose. So hold what you got is what this lady seemed like. She goes, uh, she goes, Hey, are you Marcus a nine, six, seven, five, six, four, five, three. And he's like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> She's like, right. But that account retweeted this thing. And he was like, congratulations to that account. I don't know who you're talking about. And she just could not get out of it. So I think she was down below the tree line. She had just tucked in and she was holding what she got and she hit the Jeep. But you know what? To her credit, you know, to her credit, she didn't switch tactics and, and fail something else. She just failed at one thing. Maybe there's a benefit there. Yeah, I mean, you know, before you go into an interrogation, whether it's on the battlefield or strategic interrogations, say behind the wire or in Gitmo, um, you have an interrogation plan. And um, the, the I went through Nimitzi Navy Marine Corps Intelligence Training Center before I deployed as an interrogator. And a friend, of, it was after Abu Ghraib, a buddy of mine who went through the same school, which was quite frankly, the, one of the hardest schools I've ever been in. Um, not just physically, but but mentally as well. I mean, yep. never got more than two or three hours sleep a night for for over three weeks. Um, but he said that the army managed to condense a three week class into three and a half months. Um, That's so, right. <laughs> but you, you write your interrogation plan, um, you know, and it's it in without how they train you in Namitsi, it, it's very vague. But you recruit and train people that can adjust as the interrogation evolves. Not the army and clearly not this congresswoman. She could not make the adjustment rather than just, you know, she she was she was just a dumb bomb. She was going to hit the ground. Yes. what? And just for the record, I did not call her dumb. I just said she was a dumb bomb as opposed to a smart bomb, which Un- is a guided munition. Yeah. Unguided munition. She had a payload. She delivered the payload. It didn't matter where it went. Uh, right. If it falls on a school, it falls on a school. If it falls on, a, on an airway, it falls on an airway. Um, American Gorilla in the chat just mentioned airborne is only an infill message uh, method. And that's correct. Yeah. So I agreement. It is just how you get to work. It's not the work you end up doing. Uh, that being said, this woman never made it to work. As you mentioned, not not guided, just delivered payload that was uh, completely off target. And yet, uh, you know, they're not accountable for any of the rounds. As you mentioned, it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter how they say it. They just push things incorrectly and uh, no one holds accountable. The funny thing is this, and I mentioned this on Dan Bongino's radio the other day, she had five minutes. You know, this is a timed exercise that they've created, this theatrical production of being in Congress. Uh, One of the reasons that I'm glad I wasn't there, I'm sort of glad you weren't there either because I know the kind of guys that we are that we might be combative. I know you had a scheduling conflict so we can kind of tell people what that looked like. But end of the day, they have to get their five minutes in and they were doing everything they can to get a soundbite on, you know, CNN or MSNBC or whatever, which you and I have seen this kind of thing. We know how they do it. Um, if they don't get that, then, you know, they've wasted their their appointment on this subcommittee. That's the only purpose that they're there. They don't care about truth. They don't care about information. They don't care about uh, uncovering or, or, you know, interrogating the witness for accuracy. They didn't question the methods or the or the message even. They just went after the messengers, which we saw. Um, right. I, I know you had a well, schedule conflict. You were you were teaching college. It was yesterday, right? That was yesterday. I right? teach on um, Wednesday evenings and Saturday mornings. So there's no way I could have taught on Wednesday night. And you know, Mr. Scott wasn't working. He could not beam me down to DC. That's right. Uh, for an appearance on Thursday. So um, and I realize I don't know who's in the chat here, the age group, but uh, they might not know who Mr. Scott is. But he was the original. Uh, engineer, chief engineer, whatever, um, on the original Star Trek series. So. Right. So for the young members, if you've heard Scotty beam me up, that's who Mr. Scott was. Scott yeah. was, he was the engineer that ran the, uh, the teleporter that, uh, he ran moved, everything. Sent, yeah. He said, yeah, he, actually he did. He ran the warp drives and everything, right? Yeah. The only thing I never saw on Star Trek, I think was a, a chow hall. They, that's the only thing I think they didn't have. Well, and I didn't see they, any passageways secured for field day. I didn't see any of that either. So. <laughs> You know what they did do in the next generation, though? When they came up, they realized they needed to have uh, a chow hall of some kind or a dining facility. So they started having they started uh, beaming food in. They had like one of the what the heck was it called? There was a machine that you could they'd go computer tea, Earl Grey, hot. He ordered it like a military uh, tag. So he would tea, comma. Yeah. yeah, Earl Grey, comma. And then like hot or cold. Right. So that was that was the famous Jean-Luc Picard. He would go, you know, computer tea. 
Earl Grey, hot. And then nice. it would go, it would beam down with some kind of a, it was a reconstructor. And uh, anyhow, so there it is. Cookie is very disappointed, by the way, that uh, Cookie is in the chat. He's one of our buddies that we see in all the Twitter spaces. And, and he was very upset that you did not make it down there from the teleporter. He's upset with Mr. Scott, not with you. Um, so okay, thank you. So you saw some of the testimony. You got to, to reflect on it. What was your big takeaways? Were there any things that you thought were bombshell from the guys? Or was there anything new that you hadn't heard before? Because I know, you know, we all kind of talk in a circle here, but sometimes these guys drop new stuff on us. In terms of, of, of tangible information that came forward on the testimony, which almost never happens in these things. They're, they're all rehearsed. Everyone knows what they're going to talk about going in there, yep. except for the poor men and women who have to sit opposite the dais um, and be berated. Um, my biggest takeaway was how shameless the Democrats were in attacking um, their their patriotism, their commitment to the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution. They were just absolutely shameless. And, you know... That tells me there's there's no interest in at least half the Congress. That's right. To try to identify where these failings are taking place. They don't want to hear it. And they just want to attack the messenger, discredit the message, and if possible, dirty them up personally so much that they become NPG, non persona non grata, um, or PNG. Yeah, PNG. Uh -huh. NPC is a different thing. That's the uh, the non-player characters, which is to say yeah. what they are, actually. The, the people that sort of are automatons and simply don't make any sense. It, it but is that, that just really, really They did the same thing with me. you, I, I can't imagine how those, those patriots felt sitting there. Um, and hopefully I'll have a chance to talk to, to each of them and find out. Um, to be personally attacked like that. I was attacked just in Rolling Stone, CNN, and New York Times. And... I don't have any feelings. I've been married more than once. Uh, my, I have no feelings, no self-esteem. I, I, I have grown you're children. You're enlisted. Yeah, it's just it's over. Um, and and I was upset by what I saw in print. I, I you know I can't imagine how they felt. Now Somebody I was attacked. The, yeah, the audacity by the attorney to say to in face. my testimony, but not like they were. I was going to say because they they did come after you. All right, folks. I I realized that I I did a um. I did a good introduction for you last night when you popped into a Twitter space and started rolling. I didn't do as good of an introduction today. So th those of you who have not seen George Hill, and many of you probably do recognize him, um, George is an FBI whistleblower. He came out of retirement to get into the fight with us, with the suspendables. He has been in this for quite a while with us now. Uh, he has been on at least two of our good podcasts. Um, you can go look those up if you want to hear his backstory uh, in long form. But quite quickly, he was uh, on one side working for the military and did uh, military intelligence for the United States Marine Corps for about 13 years and then another 13 years or so for the United States Navy, retired as a senior chief, and then also on the civilian side had worked for the NSA for about five years or so, if my memory serves, and then did about another 11 years of federal service working for the FBI as a senior intelligence analyst, which is to say an intelligence, sorry, a supervisory intelligence analyst, which makes him the guy that would approve documents and sort of foster the culture within the Intel folks in the Boston field office, including running the Boston Marathon task force, the, the bombing task force, which we've talked about. So some of you will, like I said, will be familiar with him. You'll be familiar with his story. We actually did a, uh, an interview about the Boston Marathon bombing again, and then I, I managed to not tape any of the sound. So <laughs> I'm not sure how good an interview it was. It was both of me struggling and uh, probably about like we were today. But uh, this is, this is, I think, a good timely time to bring you in and kind of have that discussion about what, um, oh, we lost him. We're going to reconnect with George here. Uh, we'll just keep talking about it. At the end of the day, George has been able to expose a bunch of things from his position within the FBI that many people did not have access to. They did not. Um, they didn't see the same things. Supervisors see things in a broader scope, and they are able to, you know, personally take responsibility for certain things. But they also are able to sit back further and have a, a little bit more. There he is. <laughs> Where's that George? There he is. Can you hear me now, bud? Oh, you're muted. Loud and clear. Sorry. There he is. So 
you know, George worked in, in Boston and what he saw was something that wouldn't probably go to frontline agents and the conversations that he was party to were a little bit different than most people would, uh, would be able to hear. And one of those was that they, they played your, your video testimony about it. This was about the bank of America information. Do you mind kind of setting up what that was and why that was such a big deal, why they wanted to drop it in the, into the, um, the testimony yesterday? Cause I think they were sure. trying to make a bigger point that, uh, about weaponization. So I'll just assume that not everyone in the chat or everyone who watches this video or listens to the podcast knows what happened. So yep. on or about January 8th or 7th, um, Bank of America took it upon themselves to data mine their customer base. And they pulled from that any BOA customer who used a BOA product, whether that be a debit card or a credit card, either in Washington, D.C. or in Nova, the Northern Virginia area. And they date ranged it between uh, on the front end, 5 January, on the back end, 7 January. So that was the date range. The data came from the customer base. If you had purchased a hot dog from a street vendor and used a credit card or a ball cap from the Smithsonian Institution and used your BOA credit card, you were on that list. And just to be so clear, the- are those allegations or information that you may have been involved in a federal crime or that's just a completely arbitrary date and time range that was around yeah. that event? BOA took it upon themselves. So one of the things that I I, I, I want to get back to it, but I, I think this is an important point, and and I keep I fail to make it almost every time. Okay. BOA and the FBI, the FBI maintains that the Bank of America did it of their own volition, and if someone quote gives us something, we're going to ingest it, which the FBI did. They wrote an EC an electronic communication, uploaded it to Sentinel, which is a system of record. But here's some key questions that Congress needs to get into. Who at the Bank of America said, hey, we're going to do this? Because we've already seen IC influence throughout Silicon Valley. Right. Was it just some uber patriot at, at Bank of America that said, hey, we want to we help? Or was it a retired DOJ or FBI or CIA person that said, hey, you need to do this, you know, because at, at that level, they're not doing keystrokes and, and uh, you know, doing uh, data polls. Right. That's a that's a policy or, decision that goes down to some people that are doing the marching. Or did this happen, you know, bro to bro? Hey, Kyle. Hey, bro. Um, need to do something for me. You know, we're not going to do an NSL. We're not going to do, you know, any official documentation. Just pull it. We need it right away. Have you ever dealt, um, have you ever dealt with Bank Secrecy Act? Is that something you're familiar with at all? Uh, not that much. I only, my last two years were gangs and drugs. Okay. That doesn't sound right, but so, you know what I mean? Um, so I, yeah, <laughs> I like, I like the idea that your last two years in the government were gangs and drugs. That sounds, <laughs> that's actually some people's experience. Um, we got to get Phil on to talk about it at some point too, because my understanding was bank secrecy act, uh, the bank privacy secrecy act stuff actually prohibits the, the free handing over without legal process. I'm not hundred percent sure that they were supposed to be able to do that. That may have been actually a violation of federal law. And, and, the, only because I know that 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 was a common understanding that people had um, that if you wanted to come get something, you had to produce a subpoena or the NSL, or they weren't even allowed to give it to you. And and that's partially to protect the bank from that bro to bro interaction, which could compromise their fiduciary duty to privacy and stuff. Because bank records are some of the more private things that people have, you know, telephone records. Th- there is a there is an expectation that those are not going to be made public. So it's kind of interesting that they decided to go. I mean, there is that expectation. Obviously, you and I both have that, uh, whether Bank of America does or not is another animal. Right. So continuing on. So a a congressman brought that up. Some some BOA misbehaviors. Um, I forget his name. I apologize. But he's clearly a defender of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Um, So I, I apologize. I don't remember his name. But, you know, he said very articulately and clearly that there are a lot of other issues pending before various committees in Congress of BOA misbehavior. So anyhow, back to the original monologue, they did that data poll and then they looked even further. So if you, when you showed up on that list, if you had ever in your entire history with Bank of America used a BOA product to purchase a firearm. So if you purchased a shotgun at Walmart to go pheasant hunting in South Dakota, you're going to move to the top of that list. So there were two lists, essentially. They, they filtered the, the list of all the people that were in D.C. that they were able to get a credit card transaction or any other BOA product that were used. January, you said 5th to 
eighth, seventh, fifth, five to seven. Okay, so during the, the the days on either side of January sixth, they grab that and then they filter that against people who bought firearms. Right. So they basically just stacked it. So they, those it. people so they sorted it like cream, you know, in in milk before pasteurization, it rose at the top. Yep. And then that you were on the list. And what did that um, list also mean? Also on that list is anybody who bought a ticket, and I forget the date range on that. They're talking over three years ago. Anyone who bought a ticket to fly to any one of the three uh, DC uh, airports, Dulles, BWI, or Reagan. Right. Um, and that had a larger uh, time frame because just in case they you know, bought the ticket for a flight that goes out on January 5th, but they didn't use their BOA card, they want to make sure that they captured that person in the data poll as well. Right, because that's really important that they tell that information. Now, th does this remind you, you uh, did you see this thing we did with Sonia Labosca about the, the air marshals following people during those days? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And so this is a concerted effort, not just from the federal government to do this in multiple agencies, but now we're talking about adding like some of the biggest commercial banks in this country. And and you guys had some pushback there. So I, I know that we should give credit where it's due to the people that did the right thing when it was the right thing to do it. The FBI in Boston, which was your office, pushed back. But the pushback actually came with sort of a revelation. I think that's what Thomas Massey was getting to in his uh, playing of that video yesterday. Do you mind kind of laying out the pushback and then sort of why you guys couldn't open a case and some of the rationale and what it means? So I want to give a, a background. I want to kind of preempt, you know, someone else watching this video and writing another hit piece. <laughs> I was responsible for two intelligence analysts in, in my last two years in the Bureau. So I had the high intensity drug trafficking area, for six states that I was responsible for. And then I also had two embedded analysts, one at the Commonwealth Fusion Center, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and the other at the Boston Regional Intelligence Center, the BRIC as it's referred to. Okay. So I would work with the SSA, Supervisory Special Agent, in charge of, you know, he had the, the domestic terrorism threat. And I talked to him every day, every day. And I, when I went in for my ONDCP meetings, Office of National Drug Control Policy, when I went in for those weekly meetings, I would meet with the SSA. I would also meet with my supervisor face to face because there's no, you know, telephone and, and this sort of medium's fine, but there's nothing better than face to face. Yes. I would meet with this gentleman and we would discuss, you know, various cases, various, um, you know, threats that may be metastasizing out there. And certainly January 6th was one of them. And he said, he, look, you know, look at this lead that, that we got set from from WFO, Washington Field Office. And in that lead, and I don't remember, I'm kind of settling on the middle number. I'm just going to say seven individuals that were on that original Bank of America list were listed on the EC okay. that came to Boston and said, you need to open up cases on these people. And st so staying with my preemption of a hit piece to come out probably over the weekend or tomorrow, I saw the names. I went to my own computer, saw the original EC, but could not open the big BOA spreadsheet because you can do that in Sentinel. You can restrict certain aspects of what people can see because I my squad was not set the lead. Right. I, I am an intelligence squad leader not an investigative squad leader. So the, the SSA said, you know, based on what? And WFO said, well, these people were in the Washington area during this, you know, on or around January 6th. So you need to open up at least a, a PI, preliminary investigation on these individuals. And the SSA said, not without predication. And, and so people understand the predication for a preliminary investigation. A lot of this actually goes to what we saw in the Durham report. So some of this, some of FBI's kind of um, internal policy is becoming more and more popular with people in the world because uh, they didn't have an understanding of it. They didn't have an, a need to understand it. The PI, the, the preliminary investigation, the, the predicate is that there has to be an allegation or information. It doesn't have to be credible yet. That's what the PI can, can ascertain. But there has to be information that somebody did something that's a federal crime. So you can't just say, I'm going to open it. And then there's a lower burden that's known as the assessment. And that just is an authorized law enforcement purpose, which might be to say, to obtain information that if people did something, and then you could try to figure out who those people were. So theoretically, they could have gotten this information through an assessment. They might have been able to authorize it. 
Regardless, a PI would not have been appropriate because there was no information that these people were involved in a federal crime. This was just a Bank of America surrender for no reason. Right. So I'm, I'm paraphrasing a conversation that Understood. took place three years ago. So, you know, the, the gentleman in question who, in full disclosure, is a friend of mine. We've been hiking together, camping together, um, tried to kill ourselves on a couple mountains together. Um, he's a friend of mine. I'm not going to try and hide that. But he may have a different recollection than I do of the exact wording. But that is the the gist in terms of accuracy of, of what happened, which was pressure to open up cases or at least a PI um, on these seven people to which this gentleman, former law enforcement officer, former Marine Corps military policeman, and, you know, who who really believes in his heart in, in what the original mission of the FBI is and is a strong advocate of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And I'm not saying that because he's my friend, but because I've seen it in evidence over years um as are many people as are many people i think that you and i have come across in the fbi even if they tend to be a dying breed at this point i think it's worth noting there's some really decent human beings that have worked in the fbi and it's sad that it takes such strength of character to continue doing your job but yet keep those constitutional boundaries in place against pressure whether that be promotion or or you know, maybe some some goodies like a TDY somewhere. Um, it, it shouldn't be like that to to be a man or woman of integrity. But nonetheless, it does require strength to do it. So he flexed his, you know, character muscles and said, no, we're, we're not doing this to which WFO said, well, we're going to call your ASAC. And and I'm again, I'm paraphrasing a conversation that took place three years ago. Fine, call my ASAC, who is another Iraqi war veteran, former F-18 pilot, Annapolis graduate, ball and strike umpire, constitutional constitution conservative. The the kind of people that you want running law enforcement that knows what the guardrails look like. And the SAC gave, I don't know who the SAC, or I'm sorry, the ASAC uh, assistant special agent in charge, I don't know who they spoke to at WFO, what that person's pay grade or position was, I don't know. But the outcome was the same. No, we're not doing it. Mm-hmm. And then it was elevated up to the SAC. And now Jill Sanborn testified under oath, no, I did not speak with the SAC. So I don't know who the SAC spoke to because that's what she said. But the and, SAC and we spoke have to, to at least someone. hope that she was not lying in front of Congress when she testified. Yeah. Um, so... I don't know who the SAC spoke to. The SAC didn't come and give me a down, uh, you know, a debrief on it. Um, That's not the way the the world works. But the outcome was the same. You know, we're not we're not doing this. So at the end of the day, nothing happened. But there's some other questions that Congress should be asking going forward. Did Washington field office or any other office open up? A preliminary investigation on these seven like there's there doesn't seem to be an iterative process to what congress is doing right like it's one step and we're done one step and we're done you're never going to get to true reform or true action uh in terms of oversight without asking those follow-on questions there's something about um so when I used to work surveillance, we used to laugh about the way and the inefficiency of the system. And and I used to always tell people that our unofficial model was full blast, half-assed, <laughs> right? And, and that seems like the way that Congress is going at some of these things. Like they're really excited about sharing information. They're really excited about going out there and being loud about it, but it's full blast and half-assed. Uh, Steve Friend gave me a great example. And, and I know that you guys all kind of experienced different levels of this, but he gave me a call and he goes, I got a call from my hotel in DC from somebody who's in Congress that was going to be at the, the testimony the next day. And it's in the evening. It's like eight o'clock at night. And they said, hey, can you grab us a copy of every single one of the awards that you've ever gotten while you you know worked in military or law enforcement service? And it's like, uh, dude, I'm in a hotel in DC. I don't have my records. Like, I don't know. But full blast, half-assed. They're really, really excited about doing something, but they're not organized in the way that people might expect. And so, you know, there's this this understanding of the word investigation. You could do investigations in many ways. Congress is doing them full blast, half-assed, in so much as they're interested, 
They're getting information from you all, but they're not organized in a way that we would logically conduct an organization or an, an uh, what do you call it? An investigation. investigation. Yeah. It's just not, there's no, there's no one that's quarterbacking this thing that has a, a background in it. It seems like from my end and, and maybe from yours as well. No, my time on Capitol Hill, um, God, I felt like Methuselah walking down the hallway um, with the exception of Diane Feinstein and a few other people. I don't think anybody was in older than me. I mean, it's, it was all, you know, 20 somethings, maybe some 30 somethings. Right. Minimal life experience. We're not making fun of you for being twenty, but no, but you got no, but you got you got you got to earn those creases on your face. You got to earn the gray hairs in your beard. That's how it works. Um, or if you're a lady who puts in purple in your hair, you just have to make an appointment. I guess you don't have to know anything. That's a prerequisite. That is a prerequisite. It, uh, so that's challenging, though. That's a challenging thing to look at because there was there is a way to conduct this thing. It's not being done, and the expectation that the American people have is that they're trying to come to answers. And I think a lot of it is they are also trying to do a competing interest, which is that they're trying to get good sound bites, and those are not necessarily the same thing. As you and I both know, like you know, when you do an investigation, your job almost if you want to do it honestly, is to try to disprove your original supposition. The, the same way the scientific method works out. It's like, I think this happened. Is there any evidence to prove it otherwise? Is there evidence that proves that this is the case? You know, you, you, you don't have a stake in whether it's true or false. You just have to go and find out the answer. Can I hit the pause button on just on that point for just a second? I want to just sharpen that. Sharpen it. Um, intelligence supervisor. So only like in my last two years at the Bureau, when we were writing intelligence products, did intelligence analysts have to write what's called a, a competing hypothesis. And brother, let me tell you, <laughs> you, you could have written them in crayon that, it, you know, it, it would have been, they're so weak. So essentially what Marcus was doing uh, in his job, um, one of the whistleblowers in, in case people are just tuning in, um, was offering a competing line of thought. And as we've seen um, with the interactions with Silicon Valley, um, with uh, the previous testimony on Capitol Hill, with the so-called journalist, right. um, that competing ideas are not acceptable. We, we must have safe spaces. We must have censorship. We must have, you know, information, disinformation, police. Um, that people have grown so weak that they're not willing to listen to a, 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 a contrary hypothesis or some contrary train of thought um, is really sad. And a, a civilized society cannot function without competition of, of thoughts and, 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 and some, and I'm not talking violence, just to be clear, whoever watches this, but some degree of conflict, conflict in terms of, of verbal conflict and talking things out. And having discussions, if if you're not uncomfortable at least once or twice a day, then you're you're living in a um, you're living in a bubble, right? Um, if all you hear is music to your ears and there's not a sour note in there at some point in time, um, you're you're missing out on really truly life's joys because how can you appreciate anything if, if you're not you know challenged on one or two things a day so the durham report mentions the fbi lacked analytical rigor and they're de they're dealing with crossfire exactly hurricanes what he's talking about. and and that's the, that's what i wanted to kind of hone in on the point this is not a universe or this is not a um sorry a unique feature to crossfire hurricane or headquarters based investigations it is uh it's now pervasive i think in the at least the fbi's version of the intel world and so when you don't have um when you don't have that analytical rigor which is to stay vigorous debate on competing hypotheses, as you mentioned, and you have it written in crayon, then you don't get to the exculpatory information that you want to have because nobody wants to bring a bad case, at least not an honest operator. And I think many people do actually operate honestly. But if the culture and the rules are not set up in favor, then you get a problem with that. Um, it may not be related, but I'm curious, did you feel any kind of kinship watching Marcus go up there? Obviously, he was in sort of a he was in an SOS role as opposed to the IA role, but also a Marine you know, kind of, I thought he represented himself very, very well. He's not someone who's done public speaking, um, you know, didn't obviously look for that spotlight. Did you, you feel any kinship seeing that guy up there getting, getting hammered? It, it, and this is not criticism of Marcus by any means. It was painful to watch the, the way to watch a brother Marine was, was treated. Um, someone who signed a blank check and said, Hey, I'm, I'm willing to give up my life for, um, for this country. It, it was just, it was horrible. Um, I'm sorry, after six years of college, um, I, I can't come up with any better wording that, but it was just horrible. It was offensive. It just, it was cringeworthy to say the least. And when he very 
emotionally warned uh, the dangers of being a whistleblower going forward. Um, if, if someone listening to that wasn't moved, um, they're heartless. And I'm about as close to heartless as you want to get. And um, that That's- was tough to watch. When you texted me last night, you said, uh, you know, delete this on read, but uh, but it moved me. That's what you meant. I, I was like, it, something like what moved? And then I went, oh, like it was an emotional moving moment. I think that was the case for for everybody who watched it. A lot of people felt the same way about Garrett's testimony and, you know, knowing what happened to his family. But what happened to this, you know, nobody has heard Marcus's story. He's very, very humble and quiet about it. And I reached out to him last night and I just said, you know, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> like, we've never talked, but we're brothers in this in this fight. And, and as you know, like you, when you experience the same conflict, sometimes you don't have to have anything except the same background and experiences to immediately connect to human beings like that. So I right away felt like I was talking to, to someone that I've known for a long time because he did the right thing in the right way. And that makes him, you know, that makes him one of, one of me. Um, I'm going to throw this up there. I just threw it on the screen. You can't see it, but I put up the, uh, the gifts and go that we have folks. We're uh, raising money for Garrett and for Marcus. We've had well over a quarter million views of this on the on the Twitter that has been pushed out there. I have uh, I can't see how many on on True Social, but some of you have been incredibly generous. I've seen donations five you know six hundred thousand dollars. Awesome, awesome, incredible. Um, I think I'm going to tell you the thing. I'm going to play a quick little clip from Garrett. I think you should be able to hear this too. This is just kind of his opening statement, and then I'm going to let you know just because Garrett's such a good dude. So uh, bear with me for a second here, George. We'll see if this YouTube does its I'm thing. I'm sad. I'm disappointed. And I'm angry that I have to be here to testify about the weaponization of the FBI and DOJ. Weaponization against not only its own employees, but against those institutions and individuals that are supposed to protect the American people. I am here today because even though I am wrongfully suspended from the FBI, I remain duty-bound to the American people to play my small role in rectifying these issues. After all, I never swore an oath to the FBI. I swore an oath to the Constitution. I'm going to cut it right there. There's five minutes of that. Folks, it's on the Give, Send, Go page. It's givesendgo.com slash Kyle Serafin. I saw that Sharon put it in the chat. Thanks so much, Sharon. I appreciate that. Um, folks, that's Garrett O'Boyle. He is a friend. He is a spendable. He is a very, very good man. And here's something else that you'll know about Garrett. Garrett also has not been uh, paid in almost 300 days. Uh, Marcus has not been paid in over 400 days. And so when I connected with Garrett last night and I connected with Marcus, my first question was, is like, Hey, how are you guys doing financially? You know, where should we focus our resources? Where can we direct our fire? And the thing that Garrett told me was, is look, I'm not going to lose my house and I'm not going to go hungry, help out Marcus. So I mentioned on the page that we're going to be helping both of their families. It's not going to be 50, 50 split. Garrett told me, give everything we make right now for the first month or so. And let's dig Marcus out of the hole. Marcus told me that he was 90 to 120 days away from just selling, you know, selling his house. And I said, well, what would you do if you did that? And he goes, I don't know, be a gypsy, live in a, you know, live in an RV. He's got little kids, you know, he's married and he's been doing this thing alone for over a year. And for me, that's the big tragedy of it because I've been trying to connect people. You know, it's one thing to go through hell. As long as you have your brothers with you, it's not nearly the same hell as going through it alone. And I think that uh, we all kind of know how that feels. He's been on his own. He's connected now. I told him whether he likes it or not. He's a suspendable. <laughs> he doesn't get a choice. We've adopted him. We're taking him under. And uh, right now, it looks like the gifts end go. And if you folks will bear with me, I'm going to pull up the dashboard here. I just want to show you because I'm all about 100% transparency when it comes to this kind of stuff. I want you to understand exactly what we're talking about. Uh, George, you won't see it, but the campaign dashboard right here, it shows that in the last 24 hours, because this thing didn't have any donations during the week prior to this hearing, the last 24 hours, we've had 600, uh, sorry, 762 donations. And that's put us at $55,000. That's going to be in that pot, uh, $55,000 in 24 hours. That's an incredible outpouring of generosity for people. We're going to pull this guy. I'm not going to be able to fill in the hole that he's, that he's lost for the last year. I'm sure of that. I know he made more money than that, but, um, we're going to try to replenish it so that they are not thinking about selling a house. I don't want him to have to worry about that at all. And as we mentioned about, I think I did this on Tracy Bean's podcast, but we talked about Cash Patel supporting these guys. Uh, any chance you, you're a retired guy, you're a retired federal employee, you made a decent salary. Any chance that you'd want to change your federal salary and the and the possibility of of being able to retire for like you know three or four thousand dollars from a guy named Cash Patel? Would that would that do it for you? Would that make you just sacrifice your whole career? Yeah, I mean, I'm a Marine, so I'm not very good at math. So, um, but I can even figure that one out. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's so sad. That's the talking point that we're seeing on some of these very disingenuous leftist media. They're like, oh, he's paid by, uh, you know, a Trump associate. Well, first of all, he's paid by a charity that a Trump associate created because he's a decent dude and he went through the whole Russiagate thing. Um, 
We've got maybe a couple more minutes. I want to I want to see if you wouldn't mind giving me your rundown. Have you read the Durham report or at least some of the highlights out of it? I've read about I read the executive summary and I'm about a third through the um, the entire report. Okay, what's um, let's just ask this because this is going to be interesting to people. You don't work for the FBI anymore. You don't have to read any of this stuff. Why are you reading the Durham report, a 300 page, you know, uh, findings report from a special counsel? Well, some of it actually captures my life experience with the Bureau, and I'll get into that in in a second. But I think anyone who cares about this country and cares about their children and their grandchildren, it's not going to just it's not going to fix itself. Hmm. So Dorham, I think, from what I've read, does a very good job of calling out uh, malpractice of federal law enforcement and the Department of Justice. And unfortunately, because Lyndon Johnson ended civics courses, and I think in 1965, a lot of people don't understand just how this constitutional republic works. They, you know, even some people in our sphere um, adopt the mantra of democracy they don't understand representative democracy. They don't understand proportional representation. They understand very little. And so the Durham report to someone, and it's not a pejorative term, it just means that they lack knowledge. But if someone is ignorant of how our constitutional republic is supposed to work, the Durham report may have well been written in Swahili. It, it, it makes no sense to them. That's right. They don't care. And it's not because they're heartless and they don't care. It's just they don't understand it. I think you're correct. Um, somebody mentioned in the chat that this is just light reading for you. And, and in some ways, it probably is because I know the density of the kind of things you had to consume in your previous uh, your previous experience. But it it's it's showing that constitutional crisis that we have when – one supposedly apolitical executive agency, which is really hard for me to grasp. And I feel like they may even be executive agencies in general. They're supposed to be more beholden to Congress so that there is a balance on it. And they're not right now because of the Administrative Procedures Act and the fact that a lot of this stuff has been subbed out and Congress has sort of given away their authorities for the last 70 years. Um, they, these, these agencies can't act the way that they're supposed to because they are now, instead of having two minders, two guardrails, a left and a right, they really only have the guardrail on the left and they are pushing off into the right space right now, at least today. But historically, they've done the same thing on the opposite side. I mean, we know the FBI has gone after the left in no uncertain terms. So it, it just doesn't have that true left and right boundary to keep it from from getting into the dangerous sort of secret police range, which is where we're dealing with right now, which is what these guys are doing, crafting elections like that. Yeah, I'm, but back to back onto the Durham report. So one of the, the instances that he talks about in the report is the reopening of the Clinton Foundation and how that was shuttered. The investigations so, into the Clinton Foundation. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that was being run by the U.S. Attorney's Office out in Utah. Why they chose Utah, I don't remember. But there were bureau-wide emails going out looking for SOSs, staff operations specialists, and intelligence analysts to assist with the investigation. They could either go TDY to Utah or they could work from their, their home office. And they were looking for specific skill sets, people with you know banking experience, money, money laundering, uh, forensic accounting, those kinds of things. And over the months, I did what any good interrogator would do. I established rapport with the SIA who was organizing that and was basically, for lack of a better word, collecting um, just how the well the investigation was going. Mm-hmm. Um, so recognizing that I have non-disclosure agreements, the investigation was going quite well. And then like someone defined quite well, pulled, as in they were they were getting the information that they were believing was they, there. They, yeah, they they had them to use an artillery term. They had the Clinton Foundation bracketed. They were ready to fire for effect. OK. So do people know what that means? Folks in the chat, do you know what it means to have something bracketed? They've got they've got the uh, you know, they know where the target is because they've hit all the spots that are not the target, but are around the target. Fire for effect means they're actually going to try to actually make an impact on the defined target now that they've found where the target is not sort of thing. Is that, is that so they got just up to that point <laughs> yep. and someone, I don't know who I'm not going to speculate, pull the plug 
That's it. And the Durham report says that as much. Yes. Yeah. So I watched it happen in real time. So that's what I was talking about regarding the Durham report. And then the other thing that's not captured in the Durham report that I'm, I'm sure the people in the chat will appreciate but the anniversary just passed for the takedown of the bin Laden compound. Mm-hmm. And there was an IC-wide email that went out looking for intelligence analysts to go down to NCTC and, and basically down to the D.C. area, people with language abilities to exploit all this. It's, it's called pocket litter, for lack of a better term, yep. but it's electronic media. And we're talking electronic media. We're talking cell phones, thumb drives, laptops desktops, the whole gambit. So this they the, took a this, treasure trove. Yeah, this is the sensitive the site compound. exploitation stuff. This is the SSEs. Yep. And then uh, NTSC, that's the National Terrorist Screening Center, correct? Which is in Northern Virginia? Right. Okay. Yep. For three to four weeks, they were clamoring, send us people, send us people. And then it just stopped. Has anybody seen, I know, I that was a long time ago that Bin Laden was taken down. That's I right. never saw one intelligence product at any classification level from all the stuff they pulled out of there. So, and I was the national security supervisor for the FBI. Uh, I had the counterterrorism program amongst, you know, between, and cyber and CI, as well as the Boston Marathon Bombing Task Force. So I would have had a pretty good optic on if there was any reporting that, that came out of that up to the TSSCI level, never saw anything. What Who do you pull the plug on that? Why yeah, no, they, yeah. Why what do you attribute that, that to? Because here's the thing: we're we're in a speculative role right now, so you're not going to be disclosing anything that you shouldn't. This is just two right. guys talking about what we think may have happened. What do you believe led to that? Um, that sort of information blackout, even at the TSSCI level. Evidence of bad policy decisions, <laughs> countries that we partnered with that we shouldn't have partnered with. Yep. Um, and I'm not going in there because I actually do have firsthand knowledge of that at working at the other place. But we we got in bed with some people that we should that from a political standpoint would not bode well for any administration. That makes sense. So I, it's, in my estimation, that's all it is. I don't have firsthand knowledge. I'm not giving anything away. Nope. In my estimation, it's an educated guess. That's all it is, is that it's politically unpalatable to have continued exploiting that captured material. So, so crazy. I like the term pocket litter. That's a that's a, a basic law enforcement thing that I think the military adopted when they started exploiting locations, folks. Pocket litter was like, literally, it used to be what was in your pockets. They'd turn it out and they'd find like, oh, he has a bus ticket here. And, you know, it's not lint, but it's, you know, he's got some coins and he's got a token from this machine. So you could actually find out a lot of things about people back in the day before everybody carried everything on the cell phone by what they carried in their pockets. They had a key to a safety deposit box around their neck and they had, you know, little uh, receipts and things like that. So that used to be the story. It's funny how some of the words that actually they don't have any um, basis in our modern society more, but we still use them like receipts, you know, like, did you yeah. bring the receipts? It's like, well, we used to actually have to go get receipts to find out whether or not there wasn't like an electronic record. Either there was paper or it was gone. <laughs> Let's go to the videotape. Um, nobody's videoing anything yeah. anymore. Nobody is videoing anything at all. It actually has a meaning. It's very funny. Uh, yeah. And, and we're going to tape an interview is the other kind of fun. like there's a lot of vestiges of the analog society that continues to go on. I'm, I feel very blessed to, to live in the time frame that I did. And it gives me the ability to connect and talk to guys like you, because I know what you're talking about. I, I lived it as a child up until I was probably about 20. And then a lot of people that are younger right now, you teach college. How weird is that? Do they, they don't want to have any experience, but they still use words. They don't even know what they mean. Yeah, sometimes I have to translate um, just a real funny story because I, I think it is it, it captures it well. So uh, a gentleman I served with in my reserve unit um, was getting his PhD from MIT. So he, well, he wasn't very bright, but nonetheless, he was struggling getting through. And I'm, I'm being facetious. Sure. And he was teaching class and he made up Monty Python and Holy Grail reference. And this is in, in the early 2000s. And the class looked at him like, huh, what? And he said, I'm not that much older than you. That's right. And that was required viewing when I was at MIT. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's funny how things move in and out of current vernacular, um, but some things remain. And I'd have to say that I think, you know, there's sometimes I have to educate my st- students. So when I tell them when they're writing to just Joe Friday it, 
I have to go to YouTube. Thank you, YouTube or Rumble. Um, and I can bring up old dragnet clips and just, you know, put up Joe Friday up there. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Um, so um, people don't have a concept of it, even though they use things like this. I love it when I hear someone use a expression from a movie and then you mention what movie it's from and they didn't know it was from a movie. So they'll do the Monty Python thing where they'll go like, run away, run away. And you're like, oh, that's the Knights Who Say Knee. And they go, the what? And I go, it's Monty Python and the Holy You're literally quoting a movie that is quite famous for a scene where the, the knights yell, run away, and you don't even know it. Um, my buddy used to always do the holy hand grenade. You remember that one? Remember, takest thou, takest thou a, holy hand grenade. Uh, yeah. Oh, Lord, bless this thy holy hand grenade. <laughs> May it blow thine enemies to small, small bits. <laughs> and all of the following. Uh, he used to do that all the time, and I didn't know what it was, and I had to go watch it. And so every once in a while, whenever I think about my buddy Nate, I'll go watch the holy hand grenade. And I'm like, why did Nathan, of all people, because he's the most nonviolent person you've ever met. He's the nicest human being. He's the sweetest man in my life, has always been. I told uh, his wife when they got married, this is a weird thing to tell somebody's wife. I said, if Nate had been a girl and even an ugly one, I probably would have married him. <laughs> She's like, uh, what do I do with that? I'm like, nothing. I'm just telling you, he's my best buddy. He's just, he's an incredibly good human being. And he loved the holy hand grenade. Maybe because it made fun of uh, the idea of blowing enemies to small, small bits. I think that was the bit that made him, you know, kind of go. <laughs> in a holy and pious manner though. So it's okay. Correct. Yes, it was a it was a weapon that was it was still it was a dumb bomb, but it was a dumb bomb that was blessed by the Lord. And there you go to, to get rid of the whole the enemies of the of the Almighty. Um, pretty silly stuff, folks. We're we're right up on the line here, so we've made it through an hour. I, I hope we've shared some information with you. Some of this stuff is going to be government overreach, which George is always uh, a good sort of source. Oh, on. I'm I'm two minutes late for another Skype call. Well, is that because we're going to go talk to our friend Emerald? Uh, yeah. They'll wait for us. They know. I, okay. I told them. She, she couldn't okay. figure out. She was struggling with uh, the numbers that we were talking about. So we're going to be okay. all right. You're late because I'm late. And they, I told them that they were not going to get us right at the moment of. Um, <laughs> thanks for sharing your expertise. The thing I love about George people, and you you can tell this from talk listening to him talk, he's incredibly organized and he's going to like, he stays on task and topic. And me, I'm like chasing cats. My brain is constantly, and whatever's interesting to me is where I go. It makes this podcast fun when I have people that uh, that lock in on something very easy. We're going to uh, do a quick little read of a five-star review because you are listening to this show here. George, I'm going to switch back to my main camera. You've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. You can find us on Apple, as many of you know. You can find us on uh, Spotify, on, on iHeartRadio. You can always find us on Rumble when we are doing it live, which we may have to do something kind of funky in the next couple days because... I'm going to be going to hang out with Steve Friend in person, and we're probably going to do some tape interviews. We're going to be spending our days working on a movie set, which will be a new experience probably for him and kind of a fun experience for me again. It's been a while since I worked at Warner Brothers. If you want to leave us a five-star review and you enjoy it, here's one that you can try to emulate. We're at 459. Let's see if we can get that thing up to 500. Maybe by the, uh, the end of the month would be amazing. You all are doing a great job putting them up here. So this is from Steve K., not K9, K09, uh, put it in the other day, said, would this pass as a movie script? I found you by way of your first long-form interview on Dan Bongino's podcast. I have no background in law. However, I've always wanted to know the stories, beg the question, sorry, know the stories. I have no idea what he wrote there. Beg the stories. <laughs> You're killing me, Steve. You got you to gotta proofread your comments, y'all. It says, uh, what you share every week enrages and encourages me to know that our government, uh, moreover, their bureaucracy would manipulate laws. Scary, and at the same time, there are many voices that are more prominent than my own taking steps to explain and expose the malfeasance. So I applaud you. To be honest, many of the stories in the interviews and scripts, or many of the interviews sound like movie scripts that would get passed on by studios. So much hold my beer that the common men like myself would never admit to trying, shaking my head. Yeah, there is a lot of awful stuff that goes on in the government with the hold my beer attitude. It says, keep up the good work. Someday there will be a suspendables film celebrating all of the achievements of this amazing group. Um, we're going to have a, a uh, George Clooney play George Hill, no doubt about it. That's who has to come in and make that happen. He always tells me he's got the face for radio or maybe not even. And uh, that's why we're going to have to get a salty, you know, distinguished muzzle. We have to dress things up for the film. I want Bradley Cooper to play me. 
We've already decided this. Folks, thanks so much for tuning in for our live stream. Thanks for those of you who have been in the chat. Someone mentioned to me that replicator, the food replicator, is what they used on the Star Trek Enterprise to get the food. That's why you're there. You guys are there to fact check me and help me understand the things that I forget from great pop culture because my brain is like a bag of cats at the moment. We will see you again on Monday. I'm working on setting up a long-form interview. It may be a little bit late on Monday because I think it might be with Steve Friend. We're going to be hanging out together. Also, a couple of Project Veritas whistleblowers are going to be in the area, and we may be doing it with them. So don't be surprised if we see some new voices in here, folks that I've hung out with, and I think you're going to really appreciate it. See you soon, folks. Have a wonderful weekend, and uh, thank you for all the wonderful support you've been showing, the Suspendables, especially Garrett and our new friend, Marcus Allen. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth, at Kyle Serafin. 